This week's guest explains that if you twisted your ankle, most of us would immediately know what course of action to take. But for those who suffer with mental health issues, it's often not readily understood. And, he says, it's time for that to change. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 118 of the Resilient Journey podcast, presented by the Resilience Think Tank. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and this week I'm joined by Sean Kennedy, an innovator and collaborator, bringing the worlds of mental health and technology together. In this episode, Sean talks about his own mental health journey, the need for psychological health and safety in the workplace, and the fact that education and literacy are starting to open doors. We talk about suicide prevention and how technology can improve mental health treatments. This is an important episode, and I invite you to listen and share it across your network. Sean, welcome to the Resilient Journey podcast. I'm happy to have you here. Let's just start by introducing yourself and sharing a little bit about your background. Thanks, Mark. Um, really happy to join your podcast. For the past uh, couple of years, uh, my life has been coming together in, in, a, in a few different areas, both from a volunteer perspective and a professional perspective. And it, it's all sort of centered around mental health and wellness. I became the board chair of the Canadian Mental Health Association, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. And through that journey, I also joined the national board as a director. Over the last year, I have gone back to my consulting business in Olago, uh, and it has uh, started to go in the direction of helping tech companies who are building uh, mental health solutions. And from there, um, I'm, I'm also developing a product, uh, which I think we'll get into the topic a little bit more a little bit later in our discussion around psychological health and safety in the workplace and, and how to assess uh, the baseline. But honestly, Mark, more importantly than any of it, what brings it all together and makes me do all of it is my two kids and, and wife who are who are here supporting me and creating the environment in which I want to live. Well, I, I like what you said there, and you you painted a pretty clear picture. Is there anything else you'd like to share about your own mental health journey and maybe some things from that side of it that brought you to where you are now? Yeah, I, I, I'm in this in this territory now because um, I at 36, just a couple of years ago, I found out that I had ADHD, and it. it it seems uh, from something that we know as a society so much about, um, it, it seems odd that it would take so so long. How did we miss this my entire life? So you mm -hmm. go through things. How, how could things have been different? You think back to all those overnighters you spend in university, some of the things you thought, wow, I'd really like to do this. And for one reason or another, you're, you feel a tiny bit held back. And then when you dig in, uh, a lot of those pieces are related to ADHD. But figuring that out, getting that education, understanding interventions and medication as treatment, life is so different. And honestly, it doesn't feel difficult to find solutions and, and help place solutions where other people can do the same thing. But but honestly, Mark, it, it, to make that discovery 
I did the thing that honestly most of us have done. This, you know, we're talking about a population-wide discussion. Mm-hmm. I did the major depressive thing, and I I spent, uh, depending on the various scenarios, time in bed. Sometimes for up to two days. I was on a, a work trip um, last year, and I I ended up spending some time on a suicide hotline. So all of these items, you know, they come together and they, 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 they impact you. And then I had the ability to pull some of the pieces together from my professional life and volunteer life and, and, uh, and, and really dig in. I hadn't planned on asking you this, but I did warn you that sometimes I go off script to to ask follow-up questions. And I have two based on your last answer. The first one is you said you wondered how you could go this long without being diagnosed with ADHD. I'm seeing a lot of people that I know have been diagnosed with ADHD lately. Is that because there's more advancement in understanding and and properly diagnosing it? Or, and I'm going to be a little cynical, is it because it's kind of the fad and trendy thing to diagnose? It's a fair question. And I think it's important. And I, I try to do this uh, as often uh, as I feel necessary when I engage in certain discussions. I'm not a professional. I'm not uh, a psychologist or a trained therapist or psychiatrist in any way. So, you know, the, when I speak about some of these topics, it's largely my opinion in my observations and, and how I uh, move around in my career. Um, I mean, fad and trend, I I think is more, um, an indicator of the advancement of education and literacy around the subject. I mean, my, my gut tells me that we'll probably never be looking for ways to break down stigma, but it's better now than it was. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that plus the education piece and the literacy piece helps people talk more and talk to people who can help identify some of these patterns and behaviors. And before you know it, it's, it's, oh my God, you got tested for ADHD. And now, you know, this is, these things are happening in your life. It seems great. And it's more of an open conversation. One uh, second follow-up to your previous question. You were talking about uh, you were on a work trip and you spent some time on the suicide hotline. I'm wondering, did you tell anybody or was it just immediate close family or how many did your colleagues know? How, you know, what was that like for you? That's the first time I ever said it in, in a public setting, to be perfectly honest. And, uh, you know, the, it's important to connect, uh, with the audience. And I've, I've only had that discussion in my, in my inner family Hmm. and, uh, it shouldn't be just there, you know, it's okay to have those conversations. Not, not everyone, uh, should, you know, should, or does, or needs to go around airing that kind of conversation, but I've committed to being vulnerable and sharing honest feelings in all the relations that I have in yeah. work and in my family. Well, it's so, like anything else. I mean, there's an appropriate time and place to have discussions, but your openness, and I mean, the first step is being willing to talk. 
And the fact that you had some hesitancy, you used the term stigma a minute ago, kind of leads me into my next uh, question. You and I were having a conversation a few weeks ago, and you made a comparison about how somebody might respond if they had a twisted ankle versus how they might respond when they were experiencing some mental health issues. Share that illustration, please. Yeah, it's sort of the analogy that I've adopted uh, when talking to various stakeholders in the ecosystem. Um, because for folks like myself, it helps make the conversation a tiny bit more simple. Um, but when we twist our ankle, I'll go outside daily, even in the winter, and I could be out in the street playing some hockey with my kid or shoveling the driveway or whatever. I've twisted my ankle. Most of us have. When we do that, we know exactly what to do. If it hurts, you're going to go inside. You might elevate it. You're going to take ibuprofen. You're going to put some ice on it. After a day, maybe two days, if it still hurts, it looks purpley and is swollen, the next call is your family doctor. Your family doctor does what they do. They assess and they decide it, it may be fine. In a couple of days, you'll be okay. But they may think there's something more than meets the eye. Then you go to the x-ray. The doctor gets the x-rays back. And if things go too far out of whack, you're going to see an orthopedic surgeon because there's a lot of damage. You might need surgery. That is a process that almost everyone is familiar with. But no one is familiar with what that process looks like from a mental health perspective. And, and in reality, when you take this type of conversation, and, and it's, it's much bigger than, than how we think about it with um, from a stigma perspective, but from a mental health perspective, we have a lot of people with a very minor twisted ankle injury in a waiting queue to see an orthopedic surgeon. Hmm. Vice versa is also true. There are people who need help. There are people who are limping around on very serious injuries in their ankle who should seek help. But because of issues like stigma, education, and literacy, they're not aware of the signs. The fact that the ankle is purple and hurts when you walk on it it doesn't seem to impact what they believe the next steps are. And when you can put a sock on it and a pair of pants, people can't see it and say, my gosh, what's, mm. you know, you should really get that looked at. It's only, why, why are you limping around? Why can't you do these simple things that everyone else is able to do from walking from one place to another? It's interesting because the stigma is so different. If someone was to say that to you, about a mental health issue. My gosh, you should get that looked at. That comes across as a as an insult mm -hmm. as opposed to man, look at your foot. <laughs> Dude, you got to get that checked. Uh you can get away with that when it's a physical thing. You can't get away with it when it's uh, something to do with with mental health. What work has been done to try to help reduce that stigma? And, and to help maybe with some of the embarrassment that people might be feeling? There, there's a lot of work being done. Where one of the biggest things 
the, the two biggest things that I see are in, in two key uh, segments, the K to 12. Um, I mean, we're here in Newfoundland and Labrador um, and those items tend to be provincial. And, and I know uh, many of our listeners are from other parts of the world, mm-hmm. but we're seeing um, improvements and frequent changes and updates to bring mental health subjects into all areas of curriculum um, and it's it's making a difference from that level so kids are starting to be able to recognize negative thoughts they're starting to be able to um, uh, you know figure out how to deal with conflict not to say that that sort of wasn't always the point of school and parenting etc but the more we learn about it and the more methods uh, we're seeing positive changes from that perspective. The other thing we're seeing, Mark, and and honestly, I'm working on uh, a conversation with a few stakeholders here in Newfoundland and Labrador is, is what we're seeing in legislation and occupational health and safety. Hmm. Psychological health and safety is, is a large item that is nowhere near as prevalent as physical occupational health and safety. And there are announcements all across Canada and and the United States, it seems like every other week, where required preventative measures are being put in place, similarly to how an occupational health and safety program would be required by legislation. So by by making that part of legislation, having somebody who's part of a committee have to inform the rest of the employees about different types of processes, tools, and resources, you're automatically forcing that conversation. And it's very important. It's very key that that takes place in the workplace because the workplace has Gen Ys, millennials, Gen Xs, and boomers. Mm -hmm. So there, there are folks who have young children and parents and siblings and grandparents. It's the education and literacy piece is far reaching in the workplace and that's having a huge impact. Also, Mark, one of the other big signs is, is simply market demand. Um, in um, insurance group benefits programs, there's a lot of evidence, especially since COVID-19 of companies who are increasing uh, the amount of coverage that is directly related to mental health uh, tools and resources, and that's only going to continue uh, to improve over time. You mentioned earlier that you had at one point called uh, the suicide prevention hotline. I'm wondering, as an industry, are we providing enough adequate attention to suicide prevention? That uh, that's a great question, and when we talk about suicide prevention. Um, we're we're dealing with a scenario where where your house is on fire, um, which is vastly different than uh, the narrative of the conversation so far. Um, uh, I mean, when your house is on fire, you have to put it out. And in my opinion, uh, and it's been you know my experiences and conversations have been uh, fairly far-reaching across. Uh, the community sector in various mental health organizations. And I I have to say that some of the work 
resources, uh, attention, seriousness that is put into those types of subjects is very strong. We, we still see families suffering from folks who pass by mm-hmm. suicide, um, and there's still work to do. Uh, but I know there are initiatives taking place that are working on uh, programs to help follow up uh, from suicide hotline calls to ensure that those particular individuals who are in a very vulnerable state um, are, 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 you know, are, are able to seek out the next steps for help to, to get out of the burning house, so to speak. One of the things that strikes me as a bit of a paradox is that on one hand, there is urgency, as you said, but on the other hand, the person giving the treatment needs to also present sort of a calm demeanor. Is that a fair way to look at it? It's uh, it's it's uh, to be urgently calm. Is that even a thing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the exact way to describe it is a bit outside of scope for my daily conversations. But I can tell you that those folks are highly trained. Yeah. But I can also tell you, um, very similar to the discussion a couple of minutes ago about um, indicators of education and literacy, um, training in um, first aid around suicide is more prevalent in more workplaces. There's training called ASSIST, and it's designed uh, for folks like you and I who may work in settings with a lot of people to um, you know, sort of take care of some of those initial discussions that could really help somebody in a vulnerable state. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the workplace because we've talked so much about health and safety, and then now you're introducing psychological uh, health and safety. Uh, what are some other areas where organizations are addressing this uh, even better? Yeah, it, it's a great it's a great question, and it's it's a topic right now that's um, very interesting uh, from my perspective. Groups like ISO and CSA have mm. developed a standard. ISO is more probably widely known in this group, um, but they've created four five zero zero three, which is an add on to zero zero one, which is the global standard for occupational health and safety. The idea is that it provides organizations with something to follow that helps first assess their environment. How culturally or mentally healthy are we today via an assessment using um, a combination of psychosocial factors and uh, some other inspection type tools And then the results from that sort of assessment really help the organization figure out where to go with tools and resources. Mm -hmm. So that includes training um, pieces of the toolkit, like the EAP, subscriptions to apps like Calm and Headspace, uh, and even a review of, of more common policies um, that would have been in place anyhow around work-life balance, uh, so on and so forth. But this, this is a big indicator of what's happening in our workforce. So far, it's all voluntary. 
um, as far as that particular standard goes. Uh, but I, you know, where we are in this part of the world, we have a lot of industry and we can see it all around us. And we can see large corporations who, who try to develop these programs in conjunction with the companies themselves offering tools like assessments that are built on um, the basis of ISO 45003. There are a lot of different um, specific examples. Uh, I know the U.S. Army, for example, they have a program called ACE, which is their suicide prevention training. Uh, and ACE stands for Ask, Care, and Escort. Uh, and it just uh, generates that whole have the conversation, uh, care for people, and if necessary, you know, walk with them and and uh, don't leave them. I don't want to say don't leave them alone, but but you know, be there for them, be present with them. Mm -hmm. And then you just used the word calm, and it just reminded me. My wife and I were at a uh, a theater performance in London's West End a couple of months ago, and the the production uh, supports uh, an organization called Calm which is the campaign against living miserably. And they talked about it in the play and they encouraged donations for things like that. So there's all kinds of different ways that we can raise awareness. And you've used the phrase education and literacy a number of times. And really anything that we can do, and that's part of what we're doing here today with the podcast, uh, it, it's, you know, it all helps. You talked at the top about technology and we use technology for everything. Um, particularly some generations more than others. Uh, but it seems like mental health might be kind of the exception. Uh, are better tools on the horizon for that, though? Yeah, there's a lot out there. Um, in, in this particular subject, I spend so much time working with tech companies. Um, those environments are so exciting. Uh, the founders and folks behind them are so passionate about moving solutions forward. Uh, it's more about the, the, the why as opposed to the how are we going to uh, make us look good to the shareholders this quarter, mm -hmm. so, so to speak. And the, the tools that are on the horizon inevitably are going to be a major component uh, of the overall, you know, population solution to the population issue that we find ourselves in. It's directly related to how we talk about our twisted ankle and folks who don't need to see an orthopedic surgeon are thinking they need one anyway and vice versa. Yeah. Between education, literacy, and technology, folks are going to understand the initial components of uh, how to assess and move forward. And technology is going to help us do that. One of the initiatives um, that I'm, I'm working on with several stakeholders here in Newfoundland is developing an accelerator or incubator program for startup tech companies who are focused on mental health solutions. It's not off the ground yet. And there are um, a half a dozen seemingly quite successful ones uh, in North America. But these types of organizations are really helping to bring technologies that everyone is already talking about 
um, around uh, AI um, and uh, biometric wearables, et cetera. So bringing the data from uh, a mental health perspective and using it to um, provide data that's going to help people uh, stay mentally healthy or, or become mentally healthy. There are a number of companies right now that um, offer an app that um, is focused on cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, those types of apps can help work in conjunction with a professional uh, and, and ultimately do things like um, provide, you know, more face-to-face -face time for the folks who really need it, but stay connected to patients who otherwise might need to wait two months for their next appointment. Mm -hmm. You factor that in with uh, measurement-based care, and you're going to see uh, some pretty serious results. From a biometrics perspective, there's all kinds of industries using uh, wearable technology. I mean, the the watches would be what we're most familiar with, but sure. there's high fidelity sensors used in all kinds of clothing items to gather information from the body. And there's a lot of information around uh, our nervous system stress and, that can give mental health indicators uh, that can, you know, help figure out what we do when we first twist our ankle. It's extremely exciting. It's not a large part of the conversation today, uh, but one of my one of my objectives is is to make sure that it is in the future. What's interesting about it is uh, and, and it's true with everything that the, the more information we have, the more data that we can collect and then use intelligently, the better off we're going to be. And these wearables and and even the use of AI and some of that, um, is uh, it's very exciting, and I'm looking forward to seeing where you help move that. You've been talking a lot to a lot of different people about mental health, a lot of different audiences. So I have to ask you this: If you had a song that you could pick that played as you walked to the podium, what song would you pick, and why? I would pick "Brave" by Sarah Bareilles. Oh, okay. That's I like that. Yeah, I, I I put some thought into it. From a, it's upbeat. It's exciting to start with, um, but it it has some meaning, uh, and it it sort of speaks to in a similar theme uh, of trying to solve a, a larger problem from an individual's perspective. Yeah, no, it's a great song, and it's got definitely has a great message, and and uh, I appreciate you saying that. For me, I'm gonna call this, I think, the maybe the most important question of the whole episode. I'd like you to tell people how they can connect with you, but also maybe just give some advice to someone who is uh, maybe struggling with that mental health issue. Maybe they've twisted their ankle and they don't know how to respond. So kind of sum all of that up. How can people connect with you and what advice would you give people? I mean, first off, to connect with me uh, is pretty simple. It's Sean at Inolago.com. It's S-E-A-N at I-N-N-O-L-A-G-O.com. Uh, and I I'd be happy to connect with anyone on these types of conversations. Um, but as far as helping folks find resources to connect, um, 
especially in North America and in Europe, the community environments are strong. Uh, and there are folks who do a lot of good work. In Canada, for example, um, simply Googling mental health resources, I'm not sure where to go, is going to give you resources like the Canadian Mental Health Association website. Uh, and there would be various directories, depending on exactly where you are, to help guide um, uh, wh what your specific need is. And, and I'd, I'd argue the same is sort of true, uh, no matter where you are. I, I'd also uh, encourage um, folks to, to ask um, whatever environment would make the most sense in your, in, in your employer environment. There are a lot of employers who have tools and coverages that are designed for this exact thing that people are simply unaware of inside their own organization. So you might have access to some uh, killer resources uh, mm. and not not be 100% sure. I, and I think that what I would add to that is just like if you had a severely twisted ankle and you might need some assistance to get to a place of help, the same thing could be true from a mental health standpoint. Don't feel like you have to walk alone. Lean on that person closest to you or whoever is appropriate in your current situation and uh and and don't be afraid to to ask for help that's got to be one of the most important first steps sean appreciate you man thank you for doing this keep up the good work and thanks for being a guest can't thank you enough great chatting Mark. i want to thank sean kennedy for being my guest this week and talking to us about the importance of psychological health and safety and some of the advances that technology might be bringing our way. The Resilient Journey podcast is a Resilience Think Tank production. And look, I got to tell you, I am super excited about what's coming next. Next week, I'm joined by the captain of the crew, the right-hand pirate of Be More Pirate, Alex Barker. Next week, we're going to talk about how to be more pirate and how that ties into the resilience industry. It's the first of a two-part series and one you will only hear on the Resilient Journey podcast. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.